So, Eli. Yes? How did you first get into music? I first got into music through my brother, through my older brother, Eddie, a punk named Eddie Machete, <laughs> who he was an early punk rocker in the DC hardcore scene, and he played in some amazing bands like The Untouchables, The Faith, Rites of Spring, Happy Galicki. He kind of showed me the way as far as making music and going to the studio. He got me interested in how do you make records, but also showed me really the most important thing is he showed me that anybody could make a record, that someone I know made a record. Oh, if someone I know, especially my brother made a record, then I can make a record. Let's see how this is done. And that sort of led me the way. So I guess my version of that is when I was in high school, like 15 probably, me and my little group of miscreant friends would go every week to Skip Groff's record store yesterday and today on Rockville Pike. Go buy records and harass the older cool punk rock dudes who worked there, which as it turns out was Ian and Brendan and Guy, later to be Fugazi members, and Michael Hampton, our pal from your brother's old bands. <laughs> and yeah, you know, you just go in there and be like, hey, hey what, what, what record should I buy this week, sir? Welcome to Input Output. I'm Jeff Sanoff. And I'm Eli Jenny. Today we have an interview with... A man after my own heart. A man with no hair. <laughs> One of my favorite people in the music industry, if you can call it an industry. He's uh, the founder of Discord Records. He's also played and sang in bands like the Teen Idols, Minor Threat, and Fugazi. He's also produced some pretty kick-ass records, bra including, but not limited to, the classic Rites of Spring self-titled record that came out on Discord Records and John Frusciante from the Red Hot Chili Peppers solo record. Henry Rollins. Henry Rollins. Hammer and Hank Rollins. And <laughs> Hammer and Hank. Bikini Kill. Nation of Ulysses. Q Nut You. There you go. That's not enough. Tough. One of my favorite people, Mr. E. McKay. Eli, can you help us? <laughs> what was that? Ian's enter the dubscape. It's the echo mic. <laughs> All right. So let's go back to the beginning. Jeff and I were talking about like how we got started. And I was thinking, you know, for me, I had you and Eddie, older people than me, who were already doing it, recording, playing in bands, already playing out and working in the studio. And that kind of like got me into it and showed me the way. But I was like, well, who was before Ian? Like what? Before who, who Ian. The, <laughs> what was B.I.? B.I. What was five years B.I.? <laughs> In the very beginning, I first started playing with Jeff and the Slinkies. His older brother. Aha. There was an older brother. Yep. Andy <laughs> Nelson. He wrote a couple of songs for the Slinkies. And he was a good guitar player, whereas we were not. I, mean, I had just learned how to play bass. Jordy could play guitar. We were primitives, at least. So his brother's kind of like our, not mentor, but was around. And I uh -huh. remember at one point he was going to do a recording session with us and it was two track reel to reel tape deck. It didn't come out great, but it was for our purposes, relatively, it was amazing, you know, to actually hear the sounds. That band, which is, you know, we only played one show and we only practiced for four months. We have these two somewhat like together recordings. Then the Teen Idols, you know, Jeff, you know, he would just run cassette tapes and, and we did one more sort of real to real, but it was always fraught. Like it was, everything was falling apart and channels would drop out. We also, <laughs> because it was totally rigged. Everything was just, you of know, hangers and raw wire. <laughs> <laughs> it was balls and chewing and gum. Duct tape. 
at some point in the early 1980, you know, we got this idea we wanted to record. And we knew about this studio called Hit and Run. This mm-hmm. guy, Steve Carr, ran That's it. Right. And Steve, he used to run a little PA. He did sound at Madame's Organ, this early right. commune sort of art gallery place where Bad Brains and DOA and all these bands played. And then Teen Idols played as well. At some point, we went out there and recorded at his studio. at a four-track studio, and it was a completely disorienting experience. First of all, the idea of having four tracks was very confusing. <laughs> Didn't really understand that concept. And then Steve, he had an aesthetic and he was going to use it. He got us to turn the distortion down and just settled us down a bit, which, you know, I think really made us feel terrible because, you know, we did this recording, we didn't listen to it and just was... Right, it wasn't what you wanted. Like, it sounded like Martians were playing. It was just not us. Mm-hmm. And it was discouraging because I think, you know, when you play in a band, especially in an early band like that, at least in your mind, you're making sounds that are somewhat akin to the records you love. Right. But then when you hear this tape back and it sounds just hopelessly amateur and and even worse, tentative. Right. It wasn't even being you. What were the bands that you loved that you were trying to emulate? At that time? Yeah. Well, obviously the Bad Brains, first and foremost. The Damned, Champ 69, and a lot of English punk stuff. And early L.A. punk stuff was starting to pop up at that point. I think probably before we heard Black Flag, we knew the Weirdos, the Germs, a lot of the Danger House stuff, the Dills, Randoms, Eyes. There's a ton of stuff like that. And then, of course, DOA. Now, DOA was the first band really to tour. They played at Madame's Organ in October of 1979. Wow. And, you know, those guys were, those, they are the original trailblazers. Like, mm. they were the first ones to kind of carve out a path. And then it was their contacts that Chuck Tukowski and Black Flag got a hold of. And then they were the ones who really brought it. Like, they just toured so much. Mm-hmm. Hearing early punk stuff, the Avengers and, you know, all these bands, you just were so... We were trying to sound like them, but we were trying to make a sound that would have evoked the same feeling. Mm-hmm. So going to record, just being told to take off the distortion and, and slow, slow your music down, you're playing too fast, and just kind of reshaped us, and it was really discouraging. So we did like a, uh, four songs the first time there, and then we kind of got a head full of Steve's like, no, we're going to do it our way. So we went back there, but I don't think Steve was a big fan of ours. <laughs> <laughs> And it was actually, I have this really tragic memory of while we're tracking, it was in the basement of his parents' house and he had a control room with a window Wow! looking in, which was pretty unusual for the time. But I remember playing at some point, another band came in. I kind of remember like an older guy, like an R&B band had come in to look at, check out the studio and they were in the control room and he was sitting with them pointing at us and they were all laughing Nice. while we were tracking really discouraging while you were recording okay yeah we were playing a song and they're all just laughing uproariously i mean i do that all the time yeah i know you do you don't use the window Um, (laughs) but the uh he's a skype but anyway that summer skip groff you know we had heard the bad brains tape which kim kane had done it um in her ear skip had put out this record called 30 seconds over dc and there's a Mm. lot of stuff on there that was recorded by don but skip was the one that took us to inner ear and I remember driving out to Arlington the first time, and he worked out of this little house in South Arlington. Contrary to Steve's approach, Don was, his mission was really to capture what was happening. Right. And try to change us, or he was totally just open. Really different experience. 
And I think working with Don, like Skip actually produced that record. He worked with SOA and uh, the first Meyer Threat record. He took us down the studio. We didn't really know what the hell was going on. But in my eyes was the first time that we actually, my thread did the recording ourselves and did the production ourselves. Well, when you say production, what, what, what does that mean to you? Oh, in my, for me, it means to mix or balance the sound and just to kind of the overview of the, of the situation. Sometimes to be interpreter, Don was doing this sort of mixing, but Skip would actually kind of help, you know, make decisions. We, you know, we just didn't know. I think first and foremost, a producer, like the interpreter, like the one who is sort of the interface between the experience, the gear, the engineer, the recording, and then the band who quite often, much, much more so in the past, never had any experience with at all the process. Like the idea of having say a vocal on a separate track was so like hearing my vocals without music was the first time was so totally insane. Um, <laughs> for me, a producer's the interface or the, the, you know, and sometimes they're hands-on. They, they actually mix. You know, when I say I produce band, I usually mean that I mix them. There have been a few bands, however, in the, over the years that I've produced the record where I thought like you guys just mix it. Cause they're just telling me what to do. So, although I usually just didn't say I just helped. I say like, I helped. I didn't produce it. It's weird because like George Martin, for instance, when he was producing the Beatles, he never touched the board. Yeah, that's true. If you haven't read, by the way, Jeff Emmerich's book Here, There, and Everywhere, it's phenomenal. Is it? I I want I I, I keep, keep hearing about to, it. Now yeah. like, it's oh. phenomenal. And when you hear, it's fascinating about it. It's Abbey Road or the EMI Studio at the time. It just breaks down the roles uh-huh. so clearly to the point where people wear different uniforms. Wow. The producer sat like in a chair back from the board, almost like, you know, a captain's chair. Yeah. And the balancer was the person who touched the board. Nobody else touched the board except the, the balancer, who was usually Jeff Emmerich, maybe there might be two guys. And they were the engineers. Then you had the tape ops, and they worked in a different room. Yeah, yeah. They completely, because the machines were so yeah. noisy. Yeah. And that's why slates were so important. The whole idea of putting in, yeah. So Take they all knew two. everyone was on board, you know, and then, you know, then also like, you know, it's rolling. It was like this whole, then you had the guys who set up the mics, they wore white jackets. <laughs> Nobody else touched the mics or set up the mics for them. And they were real engineers too. Like they right. could like take it apart and. Yeah. And then there's another crew who are the people who move the equipment. They wore green jackets <laughs> and they move the baffles wow. and the gear. Anyway, it's a great book and it, it really breaks down like the various roles in a way that it also gives you a sense of, you know, like why they were able to achieve so much because they were, had a whole army of huge people. team. Yeah. yeah. It's incredible. And tons of time. Yeah. And also, you know, masters of their crafts. Everybody involved were was really good at what their job was. Right. I mean, and and that's the thing. We we talk about this a lot, how the recording process has changed and there's been so much economic pressure pushing down the budgets. Right. And I always joke like we've gone full circle to now we're recording with the exact same budgets that we were at Don's basement. You know what I mean? That's, right, that's right. So people do all the recording themselves. The computers have opened up this technology where you can do so much on a computer, but the people doing it have no clue how to make good sounds. It sounds like Skip and Don were both really important and fortuitous people for you to have come across at that point in your musical evolution simply because they had a level of expertise that you were open to receiving and they were able to transmit to you in a way that wasn't threatening and allowed you to open your own options up. Whereas Hit and Run, not so much. 
And yeah. right, not, and this not to say that Steve. I mean, Steve is certainly talented in his own right. He was a good guitar player, and his studio had done an awful lot of work. It yeah. was not a good. It was not a good pairing. And not, yeah, yeah, not a good match. Exactly. Yeah, and the way that Don's style definitely fit in with he would provide everything you need, and nothing you didn't. Right. You know, and he was also you know he was fallible. Like he would you know he would make mistakes, but he, it wasn't a big deal. He's just zen about stuff. I've worked with Don now, almost thirty three years, <laughs> and I've never seen him totally lose it. I mean, I've seen him in some very stressful situations. I've seen him being treated in ways that are like pretty unspeakable, but compared to almost anybody else I know, like the guy is never pops. That's like, true. That has been hugely informative for me in my life. Working with Don, I mean, it wasn't just about the recording. It was just about you know, like approaching life. Like the guy is really Wow, he's just an incredible human being, in my opinion. His records, his recordings are just great, and they mm -hmm. hold up. They still sound good. You know, it's just crazy. I was thinking about even like the rain stuff we did. Oh, that's your old band, you like. mid to late '80s stuff, and it was a tough time for recording. The sort of rudimentary samples were in, and and Dom was really trying to <laughs> counteract this. You know, we were recording in a rec room in a basement, and the <laughs> drums. He's just trying to figure out how to bring the drums out, and I felt like between the sort of creeping technology and also people's sort of idea of what, you know, they wanted a bigger drum sound that became over-reliant on samples and, and reverb. And it's actually the one era of my recording, even with the Embrace record, the drums are just too crazy sounding. the gated reverb man That's no the, uh... it was a gated reverb yeah but it was it might have been that but it was what was the one that was a how was it, it had a a name oh the wendell junior no. the wendell junior it was the yeah. wendell junior that had the little carts right yeah. oh yeah Instant. those drum that. sounds this when i hear it i mean the thing I, is wonder, that, I wonder does he still have those those would be so cool to play with now i think he does yeah <laughs> i'm sure he does he never throws that stuff away oh he's well, he sells it oh he does oh, oh yeah that's yeah. That's a, that's a good eBay. Don is not sentimental like that. Hey, so here here's one of the questions that we had for you. So in all the years of your recording and stuff, you never went to record at Abbey Road or one of these super, uh, you know, the power station or one of these things. You never went to like a big, you know, quote fancy place. Do you know what I mean? I mastered stuff at Abbey Road. I've been there. I recorded in tracks in Chicago with the Pellhead thing. Yeah. I recorded with uh, Albini, the old electrical at the house, the Fugazi album we did there that never came out. And I recorded uh, somewhere else. I did a Necro single at a studio up in Lansing, Michigan, 1981. That was pretty interesting. <laughs> wow. But by and large, yeah, I don't really... I mean, really, my recording... I like working with Don. Yeah. And I just... I noticed that. <laughs> John, you know, John Loder, who's a really dear friend of mine, he died seven or eight years ago now. His studio, Southern in London. Oh, we recorded there. It's a pretty modest little space. Modest, but it was great. And he's good. Yeah. John was also... He's a master. And, you know, he's controversial, but man, he's, he really knew what he was doing. Yeah. I remember when we did the Margin Walker session there, and it was 224 track. Track the drums in another studio. I like the way that record sounds, by the way. Thanks. So we got to the studio, and he had been working away on this tape. He thought, and the same, the song, and the same was really the, that was the song he really had taken a shine to. That was the you know, one he really wanted to work on. And he had spent 
hours and hours and hours editing the two track, <laughs> yeah. getting the beats together because we were just lag, you know, there'd be little lags and he was literally cutting eight inch pieces of tape <laughs> out. He's just sitting there like tapping his, his knee. And if, if he felt like a beat was a little bit out, he would take a knife to the tape and cut out the two inch. <laughs> we talk about, when we walked in, there's a, he's holding a plastic bag with dozens of little pieces of two inch tape. And we're like, what is that? And he goes, it's a bag of beats. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but he didn't say he didn't say these are a bag of offbeats. No, he didn't say that. <laughs> and we were, it was actually, I mean, we were pretty angry with him for a second there. But <laughs> on the other hand, it takes, you know, it takes some nerve to cut two inch tape. Oh, yeah. And that's the multi track. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, game over. If you do it wrong, then you lose the piece, you know. Then <laughs> John, he just was brilliant. Like his ability to work, like he just was methodical and. He loved recording. I spent a lot of time with him at the studio. I was with him. I engineered or co-engineered the first Jesus and Mary Chain EP. Really? <laughs> <Trimmy Up record. laughs> yeah. Wow. That's funny. John was recording them and I was there and I was like running. I was the cable boy, you know, running cables, <laughs> hanging out with them. This is at, at his, yeah, at the little, yeah. the little, wow, that's funny. Yeah. That's, so it sounds like your recording process is much more about the people that you're working with. Of course. Because, you know, we obsess about gear and stuff and we look at these pictures of these amazing studios and we're like, wow, we should go record there. But it sounds like you are just much more like, who are the people that's going to really bring out the best recording? And it doesn't matter what the facility is like to a certain extent. You know, the- I would actually say that's entirely true. In terms of recording, what's most important, of course, is the music. Mm-hmm. Nah, you know, a, great, a, great song, <laughs> a great song can survive crappy recording. Yeah. But a shitty song, I don't care how good your Pro Tools rig is. A really bad music, when you splay it out on the table of excellent fidelity, it's even more horrible. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. And, and that many, has been proven time and time again where bands who are like, there's like they're, they'll spend a fortune recording, go to the best studio because they're so sure about their brilliance that they didn't even think about writing the song. And, you, <laughs> and it's like, it just sounds worse and worse. It's just, you know, stop the madness. So the, I guess the original question that, that I had wondered about was just you guys, you have a world of people that you became very comfortable working with at a fairly early part of your career. And right. you never felt the um, curiosity to attempt to put yourself in a situation that was completely different, that might have been more in the sort of rock traditional world. Like, hey, let's, wouldn't it be cool since we're all big fans of whatever band to get somebody who was involved in that project to collaborate with? No. That's me. Yeah, you know, it's just, I think, especially for me. I just don't, I don't, I'm the, just don't, I mean, I respect those other things. I just don't, I don't know, not drawn to it. In fact, I find it a little off putting when I, you know, people are like, oh, let's, we, people like this record. Let's go record with that guy at the studio. And then everyone just like, and just goes to the same, everyone does the same thing. It just actually seems really, really discouraging to me. I really love, I love regionalism. I love, Evolution. I love like my relationship. Like I worked with Dom for so long, and just the kind of ease in which we can work together. And but also, it's always just I like the setting. Uh, a lot of people have asked me to produce a record over the years, but I realize that mostly, and this is not 
all wrong. It's just, they want my name on their record. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I don't have a relationship with the music. I don't, I don't know the people in the band. And even, I might even say the music is just not my thing, but they like my music and they respect me. And I understand, understand, appreciate that, but it's just not my line of work. If I was a producer in that sense, maybe I would take on projects and, and, and maybe I would have made some good records with those people or not. Or maybe I would just be, my name would just be on a bunch of records that were like, eh. Because, you know, for me, it's always about relationship. So, like, even early on, like, you know, Eli, you'll remember, you know, when you first started, you were working with Don and you started going to the studio. Like, I can remember doing Trigger, you were certainly working on that record. And mm-hmm. then you did the Base 103 single. This is the Soul Side Records. And just that kind of, that era, like, the intensity of that relationship, you know, it wasn't, we were just like making records. It was, it was like a really serious friendships and relationships. It was very serious. Like the the way, what was happening in the studio and, you know, we meant it. So that's why the stakes were high. And I think that that kind of experience for me, when you record a band, if you're producing a band or, or mixing or whatever, for that moment, you're in the band. Like, you're part of the picture, or at least I am. That's the way I feel. I'm, I'm actually have been allowed into this relationship, and I'm going to engage in this really, really, you know, private affair. Yeah. That I, that part I totally agree with. It's like when, when you're in there, in it, the creative process, it is very intimate. Right, it, of me? course it is. Um, Fugazi called it the submarine. <laughs> <laughs> we know we were in the submarine. I always yeah. thought of it as the coal mine, but yeah, the same. <laughs> well, the sub- we always see the submarine because it's like, it's like all the blinking lights. And yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. And like, just like this hum. <laughs> and there's no, there's no windows. You right, could be like, underneath the ocean. <laughs> definitely, you know. When you're producing or when you're working with a band that's not yours, it sounds like you probably aren't going to want to be involved if you don't have a certain amount of input that you're allowed to have it depends i mean yes i mean there's no point in me be- i have plenty of things to do in my life i don't need to just go <laughs> sit there while other people if i don't am I, there's no winding for me then then they clearly just want my name yeah but i think it's also worth pointing out i've been paid one time for one session ever but i've made i don't know how many records i've never been paid to be a producer ever so there's a band called the follow fashion monkeys from uh, Lehigh Valley, Pennsylvania, yeah. <laughs> and they recorded. Don's asked me to come over into the studio, and I went over there and spent the weekend recording with them. Made a, a, a tape that I love, actually. And at the end of the session, they said, "We want to give you some money." I said, "No, I don't. I don't. I don't want any money." You know, like, I just didn't. I didn't equate the, the experience was good for me. I was happy to have the experience. And they said, "That's crazy to spend like." three days with us. And I said, I, you know, I said, no, no, no. And then they gave me 50 bucks. And that's, <laughs> that's the only time I've ever been paid for any session ever. And I did the Rollins record, um, that lifetime album I recorded. I produced that for him in Leeds. Was it 87? Wow, I think Leeds. And he flew me out there. So I guess, you know, and he fed me and stuff, but that was, that's about it in terms of like being compensated. So my relationship with the studio is not, it's not my job. Mm-hmm. So I'm not part of it. I'm not part of the creative process. I'm, why would I be there? What's the point? Like, it's, you know, if I'm professionally, if I'm a producer and being professional about it and being paid, then fair enough. Like, you know, they want to pay me to come in there and that's when I want them to take that money. And then they say like, you know, well, can, can you just let us do that? Yeah, sure. Pay me though. <laughs> but if I'm not being paid, well, you know, I got stuff to do. I yeah. got my own, my own songs to write. So. 
anyway, my point is it's always a relationship. It's always been about relationships and friendships. I don't go in the studio with people I don't know, especially now. Early on, I didn't really know the Fall of Fashion Monkeys. I kind of knew them from around town, but I'd see them playing gigs, but I didn't know the people. But everybody else, I mean, come on, like Soulside. Right. Bobby Sullivan is a younger brother of Mark Sullivan, who's one of my dearest friends. You know, like then like, I knew all those guys. And, you know, when they were little kids in, I knew them from before that. <laughs> so it was, you know, with you and you know, these are all people. It's all people. It's tribal people. So I, I felt totally comfortable being in the studio, and I felt like I was a translator. I was interpreting right. the situation. Working with other producers, there's sort of a range. But if you were to split up on one end or the other. There's the vibe guys, like he's the guy that's just like makes everybody really psyched about being in the room and gets everybody in a good mood. Then there's the guy that I've worked with a lot, um, Adam Schlesinger, and he's he's a songwriter. So his approach is as a songwriter, he'll he'll be like, you know, I think you should cut that verse down and let's try a different type of bridge. Where would you say your comfort zone is on that? I'm more towards the just trying to make them comfortable. I will, I definitely, as a songwriter, I definitely will. I'll make suggestions, but most of my suggestions are ruled out because they don't need to be told how to, I just, I say, you know, this could, you know, if you haven't, because they might be struggling with something. I might say, oh, you know, you might think about doing this or, or I might say I had an idea, but I mean, again, if they are not interested in my ideas at all creatively, then why am I there? Right. But I was just thinking about the other day that I don't know if you guys know the love is love Longfish album. It's a, great record. I mean, I produced it, but I mean, it's a great record. Those songs are incredible. And there was a one piece of music on there that was sort of a, it wasn't really a song. They had kind of done, it was like a half a song. They hadn't really figured out what to do. You know, we were kind of cobbling together something in the studio. And they had gone back to Baltimore and left me and Don to sort of puzzle over it. And I had this idea, you know, I had this like sort of collage, sound collage idea. And it also involved a piano piece that was in my head. I kept hearing this little piano thing. And I wrote this little piano figure and we recorded it. So it was sort of on the end of the song, but it bridged into another piece. And so I came up with this little musical figure and we recorded it. And, um, they came in the next day and I played it for them and they were just like appalled. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't like they thought it was terrible. They did, it just wasn't them. Like it was like a different musical vision. Like I heard right. a different, like a melodic yeah, yeah, thing yeah. that just made them and they just were like, they cringed. No way. <laughs> I was just thinking about like, somewhere I have that, that thing is, I thought it was really beautiful. I, yeah, you know, I think they probably like, thought that as well, but they weren't, you know, that was like one of those moments where, you know, they said, yeah, go do what you want. But then when they heard it, they're like, whoa, nope. And I understand that because it's just not... Right, but it's you have the not, comfort you know, to take the uh, to take the chance, and it's you know. Yeah, and, I pretty, and there have been times where bands let me do that, and then there's other times, frankly, where bands just anything I say, they just take issue with, and at that point, I'm like, you know what? Are you talking about Fugazi now? <laughs> <laughs> at that point, I say, you think the damn thing, like you, like this monkey doesn't need to be told how to put the bass up or down, you know? So you can monkey the board. It just drives you crazy. If you're mixing and then someone's like, you, you do something, what was that? And you're like, I just was doing a little EQ. Like, can you put it back uh, you know, or whatever? And you say, forget it. Like, this is crazy. Yeah. I will say another thing about mixing. When I mix, it's very tangible. Like, I have to touch the board. Like, my relationship with sound is the board. Mm. Like, the faders and then, like, so it's, it's one of the reasons I've never been able to deal with Pro Tools and stuff like that. I just can't relate to the, the visual part of it. Because for me, it's actually moving things and touching them and actually, you know, being able to, 
sweep the EQ with the hand so I can feel it's all touch. Yeah, that's why I have a little touch surface exactly because of that. Because it's right. when, you're, when you're when you're working on vocals and it's like you're trying to get a level that you like. It's it's just so much faster. Go bink, there you go. Yeah. It sounds right. Then yeah. right. It's also looking at the screen all the time distracts your brain from what you're listening to. Definitely, there's no question about that. You know, because you almost you can't help but look at the damn, yeah. well, you know, the the mound going by. <laughs> And then there's the, the whole thing about looking at the numbers, like, is it 0.5 dB or 0.6? I want it on 0.5. Why won't right. it? Right. I always think about, you know, one of the great lessons that Don taught me very early on, you know, you had four tracks. You had vocals, bass, guitar, and drums. So the drums were on one track, and that, that's the way of our configuration. So if you wanted to do an overdub, like, say, a backing vocal, you had to put that on the main vocal track. You would just do the backing vocals at the same time. The other option would be when you actually mix it, you fly in the overdub you just play along with that, and that's your overdub. But it only exists on the master. There's no multi-track of it. Do you follow? Yeah, oh, yeah. Yep. I forget who yeah. I was talking to recently was telling a story about working on, like, opening up a classic thing and, and realizing that they had done the tambourine while they were mixing it down. Right, and it just doesn't exist. Yep. So there's three songs of the first Faith demo. We reissued that recently, and I was going through the tape, and I realized, oh, my God, I can't remix this because that backwards guitar stuff just doesn't exist except on the master, because we did it, we flew it in. Yeah. And what we ended up doing was just using, just mastering those three songs from a cassette. I'm surprised Sounds he fun. didn't try and just redo it himself right then and there. Yeah. <laughs> he could have done it in like five minutes. Yeah, he might have. But the lesson I learned from Don, anyway, was that ultimately it's a matter of decision. The decisions have to be made. It's just a question of when you're going to make them. Yeah. And he told me, originally, recording was just one track. So all decisions had to be made right then and there. The mix was where the guy stood in the room. That was the mix. If there was one mic. If yeah, there was even a mic. Oh. You know, I read a, yeah. the original recording was just this giant speaker in one wall. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And the vibrations of the sound in the room would then move the speaker, and that would send signals down to the needle, which is cutting the, the, the spindle or whatever, the, yeah. the <laughs> cylinder. Yeah. The question in the recording is when you make that decision. When you had the four track, you had to make a decision at a certain point. Then you go to 8-track, then you can make the decision a little bit later. Yeah. And went to 16-track, you make it a little bit later. 24-track, a little bit later. But now, you can make it never. Oh, never. It's so insane. Yeah. Most, most of my work now is, is mixing. Making those decisions. And every once in a while, I get something that has over 100 tracks on it. And that's what I loved, actually, about early recording. Like, when I go back to mix these four-track things, I have to remix a four-track thing. It's so, oh, my God, I'm like in heaven. It's just like, it is what it is. And there's no question about it, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. I really, really love the commitment. That's what you got. Yeah. And I think that having that kind of, the limitations. I mean, yeah. for me, I think creativity springs from limitation. You know, there's a great a quote that I read, I don't know who said it, I should find out because I use it so often, but it, there's an artist who says that he painted himself into a corner and then he painted himself out. And I thought, that's me. Like, that's yeah. always been, and I always, if you think about my work over the years, I'm like, yeah, I've worked with Don forever. Not that it's a limitation, but just like, that's just what I, my, my corner. Uh, with Fugazi, I used, you know, the same guitar, the same amp, one chord, no pedals. You know, mm -hmm. the evens, it's like this, the limitations, it is what it is. Now make a song. You know, make something that's going to last and it's going to resonate with people. So I've never been particularly interested. I don't give a damn about technology, honestly. You know, it's mostly, it's, it's like, it's like. Hey, uh, we got to stop this interview right now. 
Yeah, that's just crazy. <laughs> well, mostly, I appreciate people who understand it and want to roll their sleeves and figure it all out. But ultimately, a lot of that stuff, is, it's just stoner stuff. It's just like people are stoned <laughs> on technology. And they're like, oh my God, this one can make a bubble backwards. Yes, exactly. And it just seems, it seems like such a distraction um, to me, but only because I'm not interested in it. Now, other people, that's what they're interested in. So more power to them. You know, in terms of music, you know, what's great is when people take a technology that is intended for one thing, and then they say, wait a minute, if we do it this way, it's art. Like early hip hop was so revolutionary because somebody was taking a technology that was probably not intended. They weren't thinking about hip hop. It was just like, they're like, oh, well, this thing makes a weird noise for whatever purpose. And these, some <laughs> other guys came along or some other people came along and said, whoa, we can use this, you know, or like early dub stuff, you know, the reverbs and stuff. I don't really think that the early reverb units, people were thinking that this is going to be big in Jamaica in 20 years, you know, <laughs> you know, I just don't think, I think that really it's like people looking at things as tools and figuring out how to make them into art. It's all, it's, it's always mediums. You know, you're just using different mediums to make things. And it's just getting to the point where technology is a medium as opposed to the point. One last thing I say about recording is that it's always sonic illusion. Yeah, smoking mirrors. What you're trying to do is, a, is bring about in somebody an emotion that they experience when they're in a room with you know 500 people or 20 people with a volume and the experience. But you're trying to get it to come out of like a five-inch speaker or an earbud or something. Mm -hmm. yeah. So what do you? How do you create that sonic illusion? If it's done well, then the seams don't show. Yeah. And it just becomes a fact. Well, that's a good place to stop, isn't it? Sonic illusion. Let's take a break there. Mr. Ian loves to talk, doesn't he? Uh, so this is the, <laughs> this the end of part one of our interview with Ian. We're going to follow this up with part two, where we cover... Minor Threat and Fugazi recording experiences, including a never-released Steve Albini. The mysterious... Fugazi collaboration. What happened? You'll have to tune in to find out. Well, thank you very much for listening to the Input Output Podcast. Please send us an email at inputoutputpodcast at gmail.com. If we you have any practical real-world questions, questions, we'd like to answer them and show you just how freaking smart we are. Also, we're on <laughs> iTunes now, so you can uh, subscribe, subscribe to our show there. And our Twitter is iopodcast at Twitter. Check our Facebook page, Input Output Podcast. You know, we got all that social media. We're whatnot. totally cool like that. Input Output Podcast is created in association with sonicscoop.com. Produced by Justin Coletti. Trust him, he's a scientist. Thank you and good night. Input, Input Output, output.